Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, July 11th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Here we will continue with our presentation of Martin Luther in Life and Death. And we are still in a portion of this endeavor which concerns Luther's life. This is the seventh installment of this series, and we hope to eventually present an understanding of the events relating to the Reformation up to the time of the Thirty Years' War. I do not know exactly why this took so long to get back to. It's been since um, March 7th, I believe, that we've done part six in this series, and we will only do a couple of segments and move on to a few other things that we have on the agenda. But tonight is a culmination of what we presented over the first six segments where the reason for presenting everything which we did in those segments, if our listeners are still familiar with them, should become manifest this evening. When we last discussed the life of Martin Luther, we talked at length about the indulgence dispute, and then about exchanges of letters which Luther had with certain of the Hussites, the followers of Jan Hus in Bohemia, who had successfully broken away from the Roman Catholic Church a century before Luther. We saw that in 1519, Luther had been criticizing the Hussites for breaking from the Roman Catholic Church. But then, in 1520, he began commending them. Luther's sudden admiration for the Hussites, whom he had formerly criticized, corresponds to his own change of heart and ambitions towards the Roman Church. We also notice that Luther had revealed his own humanistic beliefs. Luther was heavily influenced by humanism. And in this case, where in his letters, he had reduced the nature of the Messiah, whom a Christian should understand was certainly God in the flesh, to a mere man that had only, as Luther put it, and as he called the gospel, introduced new ideas and opinions. This shows that Luther still had not studied his Bible very well, basically denying all of the prescience and purpose of the Christ, denying the fact that he was God in the flesh. And at the same time, he was mischaracterizing the nature of the Jews, who were indeed the eternal enemies of Christ. Now here, we hope to demonstrate that Luther's humanism and an attraction to Luther by the humanists in Germany would be the key to his successful break 
from the Roman Catholic Church and the founding of his own church as his fellow humanists were his most important allies. For much of this presentation, we shall once again continue to use as our primary source the history of the German people at the close of the Middle Ages by Johannes Janssen, volume 3, book 5, published in an English translation by A.M. Christie in London in the year 1900. Because it has been so long, and because we feel that understanding the Reformation is an important matter to identity Christians, we will repeat a few of the things we had already presented in Part 6 of this series, but our remarks in regard to these things shall be in a somewhat different context. We will pick up our story from page 96 of our history, where the historian is referring to the dispute over indulgences, but we will not tarry with indulgences. <laughs> Johnson writes, Luther's reiterated declaration during the earlier years of this great controversy, that he would remain subject to the Pope and the Church, while all the time he was maintaining his new doctrine of justification by faith only and of the non-freedom of the human will, could only be taken to mean that he would remain true to the Church if the Church came around to his views. Under these circumstances, there could be no hope that any amount of disputation would lead to a satisfactory result. Neither could any accommodation be arrived at either through the negotiations held with Luther by Cardinal Cayetanus at Augsburg in 1518, by order of the Pope, or by the derogatory attempts at reconciliation of Karl von Miltitz. In the sure conviction that he would be excommunicated, Luther had already, in July 1518, preached a sermon on the power of the papal ban, in which he propounded a new theory entirely opposed to church teaching, namely, that the true fellowship of the church was not a visible but an invisible reality from which one could not be excluded by a ban, but only by sin. And while identity Christians would agree with Luther's new theory on the true nature of the church in some degree, it was not at all new. Rather, among the Reformers, it first belonged to John Wycliffe, over a hundred years before Luther. However, the events of Luther's life and the development of Luther's doctrines show that Luther was certainly not well-grounded in Scripture. He picked and chose through the Scripture in order to justify the directions he was taking with his life. That sounds just like most American Protestants today. 
It is quite obvious that Luther developed new theories and doctrines which satisfied his own circumstances as he debated his positions on other newly developed doctrines. Our history continues. Luther's conviction that he was called by God to proclaim anew the fundamental truths of Christianity, which had been falsified and distorted since the days of the apostles, led him to declare that he would have his teaching amended by no one, not even by angels. Whoever rejects my doctrine, he said, cannot be saved. It also led him to the opinion long held by the Hussites and other heretical teachers of the 15th century that the Pope was Antichrist and that the church was languishing in Babylonish captivity. And these two fixed ideas that he was a divinely inspired teacher and that the Pope was Antichrist dominated his whole life and work. Neither of these teachings knew. Depictions of the Pope as an Antichrist date back to at least the time of Pope Alexander VI, whose real name was Borgia, in the late 15th century. It is, of course, true that the Roman Catholic Church was never truly Christian. The Church never properly taught Scripture. But aside from Luther's impious arrogance, his approach was also backwards. Rather than simply starting with Roman Catholicism and making corrections, which is what Luther attempted, he should have wiped the slate clean and started with the Gospels and the Apostles of Christ. For this reason, the resulting Lutheran Church was really not at all a far departure from the Roman Catholic. And as we shall see, Luther held on to many Roman Catholic errors. The Pope at this point in Luther's life the Pope Luther is naming as the Antichrist. He certainly was an Antichrist. His real name was Giovanni di Lorenzo de Medici. We have every reason to suspect that the de Medicis were indeed crypto-Jews themselves, although I do not know if it can be definitively proven. This Pope sat over the Fifth Lateran Council the last major church council before the Reformation. During the council, Pope de Medici issued a papal bull sanctioning the Monte di Pieta, which were roughly the equivalents of church-operated pawn shops. There was also a papal bull barring the publication of any book without consent of a local bishop and another barring any preacher from assailing the character of any bishop or others in authority. These and other bulls issued by the Fifth Lateran Council put the Roman Catholic Church and its officials above criticism, 
barred even the publication of Bibles and condoned the practice of usury among Christians for the first time in nearly a thousand years. Returning to page 97 of our history. On December 11, 1518, Luther sent to a friend a report of his negotiations with Cardinal Cajetanus at Augsburg with the following remark. These negotiations were over the indulgence dispute and Luther's 95 theses and his complaints against the Roman Catholic Church. Luther sent the friend a report saying, My pen is already busy with far more important matters, but I will send you my trifles in order that you may judge whether I am right in supposing that the veritable Antichrist, of whom St. Paul speaks, is now ruling at the court of Rome. And of course, Luther is making a reference to Paul's epistle to the Thessalonians, his second epistle to the Thessalonians in chapter 2, where Paul is actually describing the Edomite Jews at the temple in Jerusalem as Satan seated in the temple of God. So Luther is taking Paul's description in that chapter out of context and applying it to the Pope. Luther says that the later is worse even than the Turks, I think I shall have no difficulty in proving, referring to the Pope. The Turks, in Luther's time, were still a very serious threat to Christendom and remained a serious threat through the end of the 18th century, which is the last of their wars with the Austrians. The Turks were always on the advance, and they had conquered much of Serbia by 1459, which is only 60 years prior to the time of Luther, to the time of this writing. The court of Rome, he wrote to Spalatin on December 21st, 1518, is fighting Christ and his church with an army of monsters that surpasses all the horrors of the Turks. And again, on March 13, 1518, I don't mind telling you, between ourselves, that I am not sure whether the Pope is Antichrist himself or only his apostle. Ten days before he had written to the Pope that he swore before God and all his creatures that he had never dreamt of impeaching the Catholic Church, that there was nothing in heaven or earth that he preferred before her. And immediately after, in the following May, he declared that it was solely for the sake of the Elector Frederick and the university that he suppressed much which otherwise he should spew forth against Rome, or rather Babylon, the spoiler of the church and the perverter of the Holy Scriptures. Such was Luther's frame of mind while engaged in the famous disputation with John Eck at Leipzig during the months of June and July, 1519. 
When Eck, in the course of the controversy, objected against him that his views concerning the papal supremacy scarcely differed from those of the Hussites, and that the later consequently boasted of having found in Luther a new supporter of their cause, Luther denied that he had anything in common with the Hussites. He had never, he said, countenanced schismatics and never would do so. In February 1519, he had written that no matter could be great enough or become great enough to justify separation from the Roman Church. Nay, that for no sin or evil of any kind that one could name or think of, ought one to renounce one's love for the Church and rend asunder its spiritual unity. Huss and the Hussites he hated as heretics, principally because they rejected the doctrine of purgatory and the worship of saints. In Leipzig also, he said, the Hussites had acted very wrongly because they had separated from the Roman church. So we see that Luther, as I said, he hadn't studied his scripture very well. We see that Luther at this point had still advocated the legitimacy of the Roman church as an empirical institution and upheld the notion of purgatory as a valid doctrine, as well as the worship of men who are mere elements of the creation and who, according to scripture, are certainly not to be worshipped. There were other serious Roman church errors, which Luther had also retained in his later catechism. But on the other hand, shortly thereafter, he saw the Pope as the Antichrist seated in the temple of God. And he also inferred to that by alluding to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 in reference to the Pope. So he had conflicting views in his mind at virtually the same time, because he expressed some of that in 1518. But in June and July 1519, was still calling the Hussites heretics and refusing any notion that he would ever break from the Catholic Church. Continuing from page 99 of our history, we'll see that over basically a period of a few months, Luther made a complete about-face. Janssen writes, Soon after this, however, he formed an entirely different opinion about the Hussites. On October 3rd, 1519, three months after his dispute with Johann Eck. He received letters from two Hussite leaders urging him to proceed courageously in the path he had entered on. What Jan Hus was formerly in Bohemia, wrote the provost of the University of Prague, you, Martin, are now in Saxony. I charge you, therefore, to pray and to be strong in the Lord. Do not despair if you are excommunicated as a heretic. Remember what Christ suffered and the apostles. 
The other Hussite exhorted him as follows. Do not let the Antichrist lay hold of you. He has a thousand ways of doing harm. May Christ preserve you. In February of 1920, I'm sorry, of 1520, Luther came to recognize that he was, in truth, a Hussite four months after he received these letters, and that Jan Hus had proclaimed the true gospel. The battle is the Lord's, he wrote to Spalatin in February of 1520, who did not come to bring peace on earth. I, a fool, without knowing it, have taught and held all the doctrines of Jan Hus. We are, all of us, Hussites, without having been aware of it. Yeah, Paul and Augustine are Hussites to the very letter. For very terror, I know not what to think about the awful judgments of God on mankind, for that men have burnt and condemned evangelical truth, which has been openly proclaimed for more than a hundred years, and that one is not allowed to confess it. At the Council of Kostnitz, he said that the Pope and his followers had set forth the doctrines of the dragon of hell in place of the gospel, that Hus was a noble martyr of Christ, and that he ought to be canonized. So we see that between 1519 and early 1520, Martin Luther had taken a complete about face. And that, that about face really wasn't based on anything in scripture that he had studied, that he, he had discovered. It was based on his failure of getting the Catholic Church to see his few points of contention, to see them his way. So Martin Luther had taken a complete about face and began to embrace the Hussites, whom he had formally condemned. Doing this, he begins to advocate that it is acceptable for Christians to break from the Roman Catholic Church and that it is even noble and godly to do so. But Luther was not the innovator. That distinction belongs first to the Englishman, John Wycliffe, and then, even more so, to the Czech reformer, Jan Hus, who acted on Wycliffe's scholarship. It was inevitable that good men reading the Word of God would eventually stand up to the evils of the Roman Catholic Church. And John Wycliffe was the first true scholar of these to take such a significant stand. While he did not garner sufficient support for a successful English Reformation before his own untimely sickness and death, it was not, his death was not, before he had the opportunity to write many books, to create his own translation of the Bible, and to see
the founding of an early Protestant movement called the Lollards, who were advocates of Wycliffe's work. Wycliffe was preaching against indulgences and many of the other evils of the Roman Catholic clergy over a century before Martin Luther was even born. While the Reformation in England had to wait another 150 years, and even then, when it happened, it happened for the incontinence of the king. It happened for all the wrong reasons. The seeds which were sown by Wycliffe had sprouted in Bohemia. Jan Hus, a Czech priest and professor at a university in Prague, had translated some of Wycliffe's writings into the Czech language, and through his preaching, the first real Protestant Reformation successfully took place in Bohemia. While Hus himself was burned at the stake in 1415 for his teaching by the Roman Church. His students, called Hussites, continued to rebel against Roman Catholic rule, and from about 1420 through 1431, they prevailed over five consecutive papal military crusades in what became known as the Hussite Wars. By the time of Martin Luther's recognition of Jan Hus, at least 90% of the inhabitants of Bohemia were non-Catholic and were following the teachings of Hus and his successors. With this, we can see that Martin Luther was a latecomer to the Reformation and that even he did not accept Jan Hus and his followers until he saw that the obstinacy of the Roman Catholic Church had left him little choice. Continuing from page 100 of our history, as Luther maintained, that the gospel truth had been revealed to him by God, and that he was the divinely appointed means for proclaiming it anew to the people. The question arose, by what means? The papal chair, as the seat of the Antichrist, was to be fought against, and the true gospel to acquire dominion over the earth. The Hussites had spread their evangel with fire and sword, and Luther also, in the first years, after he had acknowledged himself a Hussite, had no scruples about advising recourse to violent measures. I implore you, he wrote to Spalatin in February 1520, if you rightly understand the gospel, do not imagine that its cause can be furthered without tumult, distress, and uproar. You cannot make a pen out of a sword or peace 
out of war. The word of God is a sword, is warfare, is destruction, is wrath, is spoiling, is an adder's tongue, and as Amos says, like the lion in the footpath and the bear in the forest. When Luther wrote these words, he had already gained over to his evangel a powerful confederacy on the strength of which he defied all the bands, threats, and specters of his enemies. Now, everything which we have already presented in the first six parts of this presentation on the life of Martin Luther is absolutely relative to what we are about to present here. All the pieces fall together here. In the earlier portions of this presentation, among quite a few things, we have already discussed at length how Luther had fallen in with many of the noted German humanists while he was a young student at the University of Erfurt, where among his closest friends was the noted was the future noted humanist and so-called poet called Crotus Rubianus. We saw that when Luther had decided to enter the monastery after a personal epiphany, many of his humanist friends had been shocked at his sudden piety and his turn to Christianity when he was one of the pagan poets. We had also discussed at length the humanism of the Catholic priest Erasmus and how Erasmus had used his own name, his position, and his notoriety to encourage and cultivate many of the young German humanists from inside of the church itself. Another Catholic priest, a prebendary, which means that he was a senior priest, turned impious pagan humanist was Mudian, or Conrad Mudianus. Mudian was a professor at Erfurt, who became the leader of the rather large and influential group of humanists there. Mudian's group of humanists came to the very vocal and active support of Johann Reuschlin in something called the Reuschland Controversy, which we have also discussed here at length. We had also seen illustrated that the objectives of these humanists in their own letters was to replace Christianity within the church itself, not to replace the shell, but to replace the substance inside. They wanted to replace Christianity with immoral and pagan humanism within the church structure itself. They actually succeeded. And that they also promoted lasciviousness and all forms of immorality. They promoted the poems of the Roman perverts, Ovid and Marshall. They included even the promotion of perverted forms of sexual awareness amongst children. In the meantime, humanists such as Ulrich von Hutten 
were advocating that the humanists should infiltrate the courts of the German bishops, and they did. And Hutton himself took the lead in this endeavor, where he had ingratiated and gained the favor of the influential Archbishop Albrecht, who was also the elector of Mainz. But Erasmus and Albrecht had already been flattering and supporting one another, and Erasmus had assisted Hutton in his endeavors at getting into Albrecht's court. We'd also seen that Albrecht lived a splendid lifestyle at the expense of the common Germans. While the luxuries of his court were enjoyed by all sorts of flatterers and impious humanists. Furthermore, we had seen that the court of the De' Medici Pope in Rome was also saturated with humanists and together with the German bishops, they were living rather well off of the indulgence monies collected from the common people. We then saw from Hutton's own writings that he, while playing the pious academic, was actually an immoral Cretan, and that Erasmus, knowing that he was an immoral Cretan, was promoting him as some sort of literary genius. In addition to all of that, we discussed the Reuchlin controversy at great length. Reuchlin was a German lawyer and a student of the Kabbalah who advocated the preservation and maintenance of the books of the Talmud and other Jewish writings in the hands of the Jews at a time when traditional Catholic theologians were promoting the removal and destruction of those books. The German humanists, led by Mudian, Crotus Rubianus, Martin Luther's boyhood friend, and von Hutten campaigned heavily in favor of Reuschlin and the Jews, attacking the positions and the character of the traditional German Catholic theologians unmercifully. It is evident that the German humanists hated the church not simply because they saw the Pope as an antichrist or a tyrant like Luther did. Rather, they hated Christian morality and ethics and sought to replace them with immorality and hedonism as they celebrated the Roman perverts like Ovid and Marshall. Erasmus, Mutian, Hutton, and Rubianus were all supporters of Reuschlin and the preservation of the writings of the Jews in Jewish hands in Germany. So they were, in essence, these pagans were defenders of the Jews. While our historian does not discuss the Jews themselves at any great length in relation to this controversy, it is clear that the German humanists all sided with the Jews against traditional German theologians. Their position was absolutely contrary to most church reformers and papal critics of the time, who were portraying the Jews as devils and evil beasts. We had observed 
how the German humanists despised all things German, and how many of them even took it upon themselves to lay aside their German names, if indeed they had German names, and adopt Latin or Greek names. We see this in the name of Clotus Rubianus and many others of the German humanists. With this practice, it becomes difficult to tell just how many of these German humanists were really Germans, and whether any of them may actually have been Jews. Something else which is not entirely clear is whether the German humanists were sincere in their support of Reuschlin or if they merely selected his cause as a vehicle in their own endeavor to undermine the authority of the church. But in any case, the German humanists displayed a clear lack of morals, a clear lack of intellectual fortitude, and in any case... When they were done, the books of the Jews stayed in Jewish hands in German society, in spite of the wishes of the real Christians who wanted to destroy them all. We had previously commented that Luther wanted to reform the church and sought to keep it a holy Christian church, which is absolutely true. Therefore, in spite of the fact that he had a lot of humanist ideas, Luther remained a Christian. Therefore, Luther's reform was a positive reform in stark contrast to that reform which was sought by the German humanists. However, Luther was nevertheless infected with at least some human, humanist ideas, and he evidently also lacked moral and intellectual integrity in at least some degree, and we will see that here, where he basically kisses the asses of all these humanists. It becomes evident as we see, as we see Luther coddle and flatter all of the ungodly humanists of his time. Now, with all of this in mind, we again continue from page 100 of our history. And Janssen writes, Luther's first confederates were humanists. Remember the historian asks, as Luther had maintained his positions and if the Pope was the Antichrist, how was the true gospel, the gospel of Luther, to acquire dominion over the earth? And in response to that, to that he says, Luther's first confederates were the humanists in their struggle against scholastic learning and ecclesiastical authority. The later welcomed this audacious reformer and entered the lists for him in the same manner as they had previously done for Reuschlin. With their lips and their pens, wrote Cochleus, the humanists fought unweariedly for Luther and disposed the hearts of the laity towards his cause. They attacked the prelates and theologians 
with all manner of abusive and derisive language, accuse them of covetousness, pride, envy, ignorance, and coarseness. That's the same, <laughs> that's the same exact tactic that they used in the anti-Jewish, against the anti-Jewish Christian theologians who were against Reuschland. The same tactic all over again. They failed with Reuschland. They will succeed with Luther. They attacked the prelates and theologians with all manner of abusive and derisive language, accused them of covetousness, pride, envy, ignorance, and coarseness, and said that they only persecuted the innocent Luther because he was more learned than themselves, and because he had sufficient candor to speak out the truth in opposition to the deceit and falsehood of hypocrites. As these humanists, being shrewd and gifted men, could also use both spoken and written language with eloquence and skill, it was an easy matter for them to excite pity and regard for Luther among the laity, and to make out that for the sake of truth and justice, he was persecuted by a set of envious, grasping, unlearned clergy, who, living themselves in idleness and debauchery, endeavored to get money out of the poor, silly people by working on their superstitions. Again, a stab at the Roman Church's collection of indulgences. Luther's friendship, and this is most telling right here, Luther's friendship with Philip Melanchthon, who already in early years had become famous as a humanist all over Germany, served to strengthen the favorable attitude of the poets towards, meaning the pagan humanists, towards the Wittenberg Herald of New Truth meaning Martin Luther. And the tactics of these humanists are sort of like pre-Jesuit Jesuit tactics. The Jesuits, as far as I understand, are adept at training their students to win debates, no matter which side of the debate that they're on. These humanists, these pagan humanists, didn't really care about religion. They really didn't care about Luther's religious positions. They were only taking his side and debating on his behalf to undermine the papacy. Now, the undermining of the papacy was a good thing, but the humanists wanted to undermine the papacy for all the wrong reasons, while Luther's reasons seem to be much more noble and more Christian. Here it must be noted that Philip Melanchthon was the great-nephew, the grandson of Johann Reuschland's sister. Melanchthon is said to have spent a good part of his life under the guidance of his great-uncle, Johann Reuschlin, who had died in 1522. From 1521, Melanchthon became a defender of Luther and eventually 
became his collaborator and his partner in the founding of the Lutheran Church. So, Reuschlin spends his whole career defending the Jews and the Talmud and the Kabbalah and his great-nephew, Melanchthon, who was under the tutelage and, 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 and guidance of Reuschlin for most of his young life, becomes Luther's partner in founding the Lutheran Church. Melanchthon was 14 years younger than Luther, and he died 14 years after Luther died. So the second most important figure in the Lutheran Reformation was a famous humanist in his own right and the close nephew of a man who spent his life studying and defending the Talmud and the Kabbalah. Incredible. Continuing from page 101 of our history, and the history actually did not supply that information, not that I've read so far. I obtained it from other sources. Continuing from page 101, Luther himself had tried at a fairly early date to ingratiate himself with the humanist confederacy. Here's where Luther lacks moral scruples, because he had to know. He had to know what these guys were about and had addressed his homage in flattering letters to its leaders, Mutian, Reuschlin, and Erasmus. To Mutian, that most learned man of most exquisite culture, that's what Luther called them, that's in quotes, he spoke of himself as a barbarian who had always been accustomed to the cackling of geese. That's very ingratiating because the poets, the humanist poets, considered the scholarly Christian academics to be barbarians. So Luther is admitting that he's a barbarian who had always been accustomed to the cackling of geese, inferring that Luther was considering his church elders cackling geese and begged the favor of his friendship. In a letter to Reuschlin on December 14, 1518, he called himself, Luther called himself, Reuschlin's successor. Reuschlin was a defender of the writings of the Jews. That's how he spent half his career, practically. Luther called himself Reuschlin's successor, who, like him, was suffering persecution, but whose courage was undaunted thanks to Reuschlin. Germany had begun, had begun to breathe again after long centuries, during which it had not been simply crushed, but almost annihilated. The beginnings of better knowledge, he wrote to Reuschlin, could only come through a man endowed with no small portion of grace. For as God had trodden into the dust of death the greatest of all mountains, Jesus Christ, and from that dust sprung numbers of other mountains, so Reuschlin, he wrote, would have brought forth but little fruit 
if he too had not been similarly slain and trampled into the dust, from which dust so many defenders of the Holy Scriptures had arisen. He's really being patronizing to Reuschland. He couldn't kiss his ass any more than that, unless he did it literally. His language towards Erasmus was even more subservient. He was, quote, the ornament and hope of his age, a man after my own heart, with whom I commune daily in spirit. So wrote Luther on March 28, 1519, quote, for where is there anyone whose inner being Erasmus does not take in at a glance, whom Erasmus does not instruct, whom Erasmus does not rule? He himself, he went on, during his time with the Sophists, another ingratiating label for the Christian theologians, had not even got so far as to be on terms of correspondence with any learned man. But now that his name had become known to Erasmus, through the indulgence controversy, and that he had learnt from the preface to the new edition of the Manual of a Christian Soldier, that Erasmus approved of his writings, he ventured to approach him and to beg for his favor. He subscribed himself, as his most devoted admirer. So Luther goes head over heels to flatter Mutian, Reuschland, and Erasmus. Here we must ask whether Luther had really abandoned the humanism which he became so intimately acquainted with as a young student at Erfurt. This same Erasmus had also approved of the sexually perverted writings of men like Crotus Rubianus and Ulrich von Hutten, and Luther is actively seeking his approbation. We have also established in the early segments of this presentation that Mutian was a pagan humanist and a supporter of all immorality, and Luther was seeking his approbation as well. Reuschland, was a famous scholar of his time, second only to Erasmus, but he was also a Kabbalist, a student of the Talmud, and a defender of the Jews. We must stop short of considering Reuschland to have been a Jew himself, since he was apparently born to a Christian family and had a father who was an official at a Dominican monastery. However, it is clear that Luther was willing and even happy to associate himself with many of the leading pagan humanists and defenders of the Jews of his time. It would not be for at least another 20 years that Luther would actually take up a pen against the Jews. On the Jews and their lies came late in Martin Luther's life as he became aware of Jewish treachery late in his life. And that's why he wrote it 20 years later in 1543. At this time, Luther is ingratiating himself with Reuschland and all these humanists who were basically in bed with the Jews. And Luther is joining them. Mutian whom Luther approached first, 
was also the first among the prominent humanists who saw in Luther's proceedings against Rome the dawn of a better future. Among his circle, the new Hercules, the second Paul, found the most ardent supporters. So we see that Mutian, in turn, is likewise ingratiating Luther by calling him the new Hercules and the second Paul. In satires and university lectures, Erfurt humanists such as Eurychius Cordus, Justice Jonas, Iobanus Hessus entered the lists against the unholy band who were oppressing Luther, and it was a chief incentive to them that Erasmus, their venerated leader, had taken Luther's cause under his protection. The works and letters of Erasmus were to the humanists a wellspring of ever-fresh enthusiasm for Luther. Whoever read them, wrote one of themselves, could no longer turn aside from the great work begun by Luther. After the example of Luther, the humanists accustomed themselves to a biblical style of language, which soon pervaded all humanistic literature. They even became, of a sudden, scholars of divinity and delivered lectures on theological subjects, whereas formerly a colleague of Mutian's had devoted a special lecture to the exposition of the praise of folly. Iobanus Hesus, in 1519, chose the manual of a Christian soldier as the subject of his discourse. Erasmus, he said, had brought the world back to the fountain of true piety, the Bible, and the yoke of superstition, hypocrisy, and degradation must now be thrown off. It was not to be tolerated that the Christian populace, the simple and unlearned masses, should be any longer deceived by foolish, deceitful trickery. Under the banner of Christ, they must destroy the host of the enemy. Eurychius Cordus praised Luther as the savior and emancipator of piety, as a hero greater than Achilles. Justice Jonas saw in the whole world nothing but sin and corruption and called for a complete breach with the past. But the most extravagant of them all was Crotus Rubianus, with whom Luther had in former years stood in close friendship at Erfurt. After having, in 1518, in the character of a genuine humanist, extolled the Italian Petrus Pomponatius, who had questioned the immortality of the soul, and having welcomed him as an associate in the work of exterminating the sophists and monks. He now began to realize how greatly his ends would be furthered by Luther's campaign. And this Petrus Pomponatius was a 16th century humanist and Aristotelian philosopher. He at once became biblically minded, referring to Crotus Rubianus, 
and chose the sword of the Holy Scriptures as his new watchword. On October 16, 1519, he wrote to Luther as his learned and saintly friend, urging him as the chosen of the Lord to the most reckless steps against the papal chair, the seat of corruption, the very sight of which caused nausea. The stroke of lightning, which had once struck Luther to the ground at Erfurt, was a sign that, like a second St. Paul, he had received a special call from heaven. He must go on as he had begun, and all Germany would receive the word of God from him with rejoicing. So we see that the pagan humanists, who formerly called the scolias the Christian theologians, barbarians, and who always had a disdain for book learning and a hatred for the study of scripture, they were all of a sudden claiming to be Bible experts in support of the cause of Luther. All of a sudden, they were all learned theologians. Earlier in this volume, our historian had said of these same men that, and I quote, Germany was completely overrun with literary parasites, charlatans, and lampoonists who made the vilification of the church and the clergy and the monastic orders a special branch of their newly acquired culture. That was indeed the modus operandi of the humanists who failed to undermine the church in Germany during the Reuschling controversy. And now these chameleons have adapted to a new struggle by falling in line behind Martin Luther, who for them must only have been a convenient ally because these licentious and immoral men never really cared about Christianity. Not one whit. Continuing from page 104 of our history. In Lower Germany, which actually refers to Northern Germany, the parts of Germany by the sea. In Lower Germany, Luther, on his first coming forward, found the most enthusiastic supporters among the humanists, the Roman lawyers, and the patricians of Nuremberg, men like Christopher Schur, Hieronymus Ebner, Johann Holzschucker, Lazarus Spengler, and others vied with each other in tokens of approval. Luther has become Germany's most illustrious man, wrote Schwerl in the year 1518. His name is on everyone's lips. His friends extol him, worship him, fight for him, and are ready to go through the fire and the water for him. They kiss his writings. They call him a herald of truth, a trumpet of the gospel, a preacher of the one Christ through whom alone the apostle Paul speaks. Even Albert Durer, Albert Durer was the great artist famous for his woodcuts. 
Even Albert Durer could scarcely find words with which to praise Luther as a man enlightened by the Holy Ghost and a follower of the true Christian faith, who had written with clearer vision than any other man who had lived during the last 140 years. From men like Luther, Durer hoped for the realization of the unity of the Christian church so that all unbelievers, as he said, on account of our good works, may turn to us of their own accord and accept the Christian faith. So too, Durer's friend, Willibald Perkheimer, was for many years a staunch supporter of Luther. Perkheimer was a, um, a German lawyer at Nuremberg and a humanist who was also a very close friend of Erasmus. Perkheimer was for many years a staunch supporter of Luther until his eyes were opened to see the sad effects of the new gospel, the evangelical rascalism which became so common and the not evangelical but diabolical libertinism of so many apostates, both men and women. Perkheimer, ostensibly before his eyes were opened to the diabolical libertinism of the new gospel, Perkheimer called the scholastic philosophers wild beasts and hobgoblins who ought to be thrashed. In the Latin satire, Echius Dedalatus, presumably written by Perkheimer, a dialogue in the spirit of the Letters of Obscure Men, which was an immoral treatise written primarily by Curtis Rubianus against the Dominican theologians during the Reuschling controversy, Eck is held up to general scorn. Johann Eck being Luther's adversary in the disputations of 1519. He is represented as a thoroughly bad man and made to say that in heart he was one with Luther, for he was inspired only by the greed of gain, in other words, by supporting the Roman Catholic collection of indulgences, and that he played upon superstition and stupidity of the people to get money out of them. Eck, of course, remained a Catholic even after Luther's Reformation. Luther had also most zealous partisans among the humanists of Augsburg, Strasbourg, Schlettstadt, Basel, and Zurich. The literary clubs in these towns distributed freely among the people pamphlets, fugitive pieces, and caricatures inimical to the church. They sent hawkers around who went from house to house and were only allowed to sell opposition literature. The sale of Lutheran books was enormous, and side by side with them appeared thousands of leaflet satires and pasquils, which struck at all existing institutions of church and society. In no other period of German history did revolutionary journalism acquire such importance and such wide circulation as at that time. 
crowds of adherents flocked around Luther, not from any preference for his religious opinions, but, as Melanchthon explains, because they looked upon him as the restorer of liberty, under which each name one understood the removal of whatever stood in his way, and the attainment of the particular form of happiness he individually wished for. Many of his supporters were actuated by no other motive than the love of destroying. By speech and by pen, they labored for the destruction of social order and undermined through all classes of society, all respect for the inward restraints of religion and consciousness, I'm sorry, and conscience, and the outward control of the law. So we see that the Reformation in the time of Luther was a two-edged sword. On the one hand, it gave many of the Christians of Europe the opportunity to break from the tyranny of the Roman Catholic Church and the ability to study the scriptures and the gospel from the word of God unhindered. And that's the good half of Luther's Reformation. On the other hand, it opened the door for many immoral and pagan humanists, libertines, to peddle their immorality apart from the restraints imposed by what they saw as the authoritarian church. These people were against the idea of the control of law. They were against organized morality. They not only wanted to see church oppression come to an end, but they wanted to see an end to law itself. Luther's justification by faith only doctrine helped pave the way for that in the minds of marginal Christians. While the humanists had certainly sided with the Jews in the past, the hand of the Jews in all of this is not entirely clear at least in the sources which we currently have available. However, those humanists who came to Luther's fight certainly seem to be well-equipped and well-funded. However, it also appears that not even the humanists were in complete agreement in their motives, as we have seen, that Willie Ball Perkheimer developed a disdain for Luther's new gospel because it opened the door for what he called diabolical libertinism of so many apostates, both men and women. A perfect example of the immoral nature of those humanists who nevertheless saw an opportunity in Martin Luther was Ulrich von Hutten, which our historian now proceeds to document from page 106 of this volume. But before I continue with um, Ulrich von Hutten's response to, to what was transpiring in the events circling around Martin Luther, let me say that it's also evident here that Martin Luther did not rally people behind a consistent idea except the idea to be free of the papacy. Other than that, 
it's obvious from what Johnson says here that everybody who supported Luther had his own idea of what freedom that would bring, had his own pet vices or his own pet peeves with the church and wanted to basically follow his own way, not rally behind Christ, not rally behind Luther as a representative of the Christ of the scripture, but simply to break free from the oppression and tyranny of the Roman Pope and of church law so that they could do and engage in whatever vice, immorality, type of hedonism or perversion that they wanted. Back to page 106 and Ulrich von Hutten's response to Luther. The most violent and at the same time the most gifted of these enemies of the existing order was Ulrich von Hutten. A man without any respect for or understanding of questions of Christian doctrine. He had from the first, while viewing Luther's controversy as a contemptible monkish quarrel, realized nevertheless how much it might advance his own ends. Perhaps you do not yet know, he wrote to a friend in April 1518, that at Wittenberg in Saxony, one party has risen up against the power of the Pope, while the other party is defending papal indulgences with all its might, referring to Johann Tetzel. Monks are at the head of the combatants, and passionate, hot-headed, fanatical leaders they are, now shouting triumphantly, now wailing and lamenting. Lately, they have also taken to writing. The printers have their work cut out for them. My hope is that they will mutually work each other's ruin. When a brother of a certain order told me a short time ago what was going on in Saxony, I answered, Bite and devour one another, so that ye be consumed of one another. Heaven grant that our enemies may fight each other as fiercely as possible, and finally destroy one another in internecine strife even after the transactions of Luther with Cardinal Cayetanus. Hutton, at the end of October 1518, still viewed the matter from the same point of view. He rejoiced at the spectacle of theologians tearing each other to pieces. He, personally, he said, at about the same time, had set himself a distinct aim Amid his literary pursuits, he did not intend to miss the opportunity of establishing his hereditary nobility by personal merit and deeds of prowess and adding to the fame and glory of his family. In his plans, he said, he reckoned with fortune. He could not lose anything by the venture. He had not enough to live on as it was, but through good luck he might gain something. He did not believe at that time that the Lutheran movement could forward his object of revolutionizing political conditions in favor of the nobility. Towards the end of the year, 1518, he published a pamphlet entitled The Turkenreed, 
which had been written in May, in which he denounced not only the court of Rome, but also the German princes, and their reciprocal robbing and plundering, burning and pillaging, and foretold an early rising of the people. While he himself, the year before, had undertaken a mission from the elector Albrecht of Mainz, or Mayence, to the French court in order to conclude an alliance with Francis I, and to promise the later Albrecht's vote at the election of a new emperor, he now declared that it was a scandalous, un-German, and treasonable plan to transfer the imperial crown to a foreigner as though princely blood had died out in Germany and it had belonged to Charles V. In an appendix to the Turkenried, for all free and loyal Germans, he turned the point of his attack against Rome. Rome must take care, he said, that liberty, gagged and well-nigh strangled, did not suddenly break loose. As we had discussed earlier in the series, Ulrich von Hutten was born in 1488, a scion of a Franconian knight, knightly family, at the castle of Steckelberg. He did belong to the German nobility. Here he is revealed to have had ambitions based on his own sense of entitlement that were far beyond his actual merits and abilities. He was an immoral man with an incontinent lifestyle. He was a parasite at the court of Albrecht and an opportunist who saw in Luther a chance for achieving his own personal goals in glory rather than any truly noble cause. He did lead a group of knights in, and, and we'll discuss this more in our next segment, in the German religious wars which followed. But, quite fittingly, he died of syphilis in 1523, quite deservedly. Yahweh willing, we will continue our examination of Martin Luther in life and death and the role of the pagan, ungodly pagan humanists in the success of Luther's Reformation at some point in the near future. I don't know if it'll be next week or within the next couple of weeks, but it will be soon. Next Friday, we will continue our biblical exegesis with the prophecy of Zephaniah before we go back to the letters of Paul and the epistle to the Galatians coming up in a few weeks. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, Thank you for listening, and good night.